Hey friends, before the next episode, I wanted to share a bit more about my virtual recovery community called The Recovery Collective. For less than a cost of one therapy session per month, our members get access to workshops, group coaching with me, cook-alongs, yoga, recipes, meditations, and even a private Facebook community. It is seriously the most fun community in the eating disorder recovery world right now. If your eating disorder is making you feel isolated and alone, this place will lift your spirits and bring you the connection you're looking for. So I ask you to join all of us. Go to recoverycollective.mykajabi.com or you can check out the link in the show notes. I look forward to seeing you inside the collective and enjoy this next episode. You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today's guest is Millie Thomas. Millie is an eating disorder recovery coach, a neuro-linguistic programming practitioner, and she is also fully recovered from an eating disorder that she battled for over 15 years. If you are unfamiliar with Millie's work, I promise you that you will find her story truly inspiring and that it will help you feel a renewed sense of hope for your journey. So please enjoy this week's episode of the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Full and Thriving podcast. I am here with the beautifully talented Millie Thomas today. Millie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. I'm so excited to have you here too. It's always so nice to get a chance to chat with you and learn from you as always. Oh, I always learn so much from you as well. I love doing these things. (laughs) Thank you. So I'm sure that there are many people listening today who are pretty familiar with your work, but for those who are new to you, I would love for you to share a little bit about your recovery journey. How did you go from someone with an eating disorder to someone who's fully recovered and now a coach yourself? Sure. So for me, my anorexia journey started when I was 12. So I'd had a very, quote unquote, normal childhood, very loving family. All of my family had very normal relationships with their bodies, with food, with exercise. There weren't really any alarm bells or warning signs for want of a better word. However, when I started at an all girls private school, 
that was what triggered it off for me. So what we often talk about with the eating disorders is that the genes load the gun and then the environment pulls the trigger. So for me, I had the personality characteristics, the genetics that would predispose me to, to having anorexia. And then I was put in this environment where the scene was set and anorexia took hold for me. And so what happened then was for, so that was my year seven. Um, so this is all back in Auckland, New Zealand, where I was original, where I'm originally from. And so I, I was taken out of school for year eight and we did FBT, so family-based therapy. And what, what is often the case is that there is this focus on weight, weight gain and weight restoration. And unfortunately, the psychological um, support that needed to happen alongside that, that really intense, I guess, digging deep into what's happening underneath all of this, it, it, that never really got addressed for me. What happened was that I got put back into school in year nine and everyone thought, well, this is good. Millie's better. And I was a slightly higher weight, enough for me not to be in and out of hospital or anything like that. However, I was still quite, I was just riding that line weight-wise of being okay. I was still, I was still quite slim. And of course, I still had all the thoughts. And I thought to myself, well, everybody thinks that I'm okay. I'm going to have to be okay. And so it was very much putting on that facade, um, which I I nailed doing that after many, many, many years. And so through my all my entire high school years, I threw myself into academia. So I was part of the school council. I was played lots of different sports. I was in lots of different cultural activities and just wanted to try and be the perfect student. Mm. And Again, my eating disorder was in full force. So I was nailing academia, so to speak. However, the social things that happen in high school, I mean, there's so many formative experiences that we have in high school, relationships, experimentation with alcohol and things like that and parties. And I didn't do any of that. Or if I did go to parties, I wasn't, I was so on edge about comparing myself or that sort of thing. I wasn't really truly living like all my friends were living. So... That was really high school. I got to my year 13 year, which is the last year of school um, in New Zealand. And I was nominated to represent uh, New Zealand at the Global Young Leaders Conference, which was to be held in Washington and New York. And I, of course, jumped at the opportunity to do such an amazing thing. And it wasn't until I got on the plane that I realized that was the first time that I had been away from my parents since my eating disorder began. And I sat down in that plane seat and my eating disorder immediately went, oh, well, this is convenient because you're not going to have to eat because no one's going to know and no one's going to force you. And so it was just this moment for me where I realized, oh, my goodness, okay. And there was my healthy self-eating disorder self-battle going on, but my eating disorder self was so much stronger at that time. And so unfortunately on that trip, I lost a significant amount of weight and I came back and because I was 18, I was now classified as an adult. And so I basically had control over, over what, what would happen to me in terms of treatment. And so my parents couldn't force me to do anything. So that became my new normal, that weight. And I got a scholarship to university and my mum really wanted to take me to take some time out and really 
focus on recovery. Uh, absolutely no way was I going to do that. I've got this amazing scholarship. I'm going to go and study my business degree. And I did. I went and topped the business school. All the while, totally, totally ensconced in my eating disorder and my main focus being food, exercise, body image. You look back at my Facebook memories and there's all these incredible pictures of me in Spain or me in Croatia or it's so interesting to look back at photos like that and see this massive smile plastered on my face masking the reality of what those trips were like and so it really wasn't a life it was an existence and I got a job straight out of university and so of course threw myself into that how convenient (laughs) and my disorder continued to thrive and basically I mean my weight just would bit by bit just get lower and that was my new normal get a little bit lower again okay this is my new normal and basically long story short I then got to a point where I was a bit so I was being seen as an outpatient at a uh, hospital in Auckland and there was a point where they pulled me and my parents into a room and said that my case of anorexia was too severe and that I wasn't going to recover and that palliative care really be the option that I should be considered and for me that was really really horrific to hear because I really had been trying I had been trying and I did believe somewhere inside of me that I could recover and my and my parents held that hope for me as well and when the professionals, the people who meant to know everything, told me that it just wasn't possible, that took that last bit of hope away from me. So that was really, really hard. I vividly remember everything about that day. And after that day, unfortunately, what happened is I just started, that really set me on a, on a down, more of a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. And so it came to a point where I walked into my family GP's office and he had tears in his eyes and he treated me since I was a baby. And he just said, you know, you've got a week, maybe two before your body gives out, before you die, you have to decide whether you want to live or you want to die. And I had never been suicidal. I'd never been depressed. I loved life, but the life that I was living was a living hell. And in 15 years, at that point, you know, I was 27 and so I'd been unwell for 15 years. And in those 15 years, I had tried every modality under the sun to try and get well. I tried so hard and I hadn't been able to. And then I'd had somebody say to me that it's not possible. You won't get well. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that day that I was going to make the decision that I was going to die because the only way that I could ever see I could be at peace was to be up in the clouds looking down the world from afar and I really mean that that's how I felt so I went home to tell my mum that and she obviously was struggling to come to terms with that but she also on the other hand knew just how much pain I was in physically mentally emotionally and how hard we'd tried over the years to get me well however she was going to Noosa here on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland Australia and she said to me well come with me to Noosa and I think you know in her her mind it always been a happy place and I think she hoped that it would might be somewhere where I could find my light again and she fortunately found an incredible therapist over here who specializes in neuro-linguistic programming so NLP and hypnotherapy so we came over here to the Sunshine Coast where I now live and 
we started seeing the, the therapist name is Silky and I held no hope for it to work. I really didn't. I was doing it for mum. I felt like I owed it to her to give it a go. And it was the hardest six months of my life, but it was also the most transformative six months of my life. I walked into that room and Silky said to me, do you want to change your brain? And <laughs> I, I said, well, of course I do. But I've, all, I, I've been told that I can't, like it's impossible. I'm either going to die or I'm going to have to learn how to manage this for the rest of my life. She said, no, that's not what I asked you. I asked you, can, do you want to change your brain? Well, yes, I do. She's like, okay, so let's do it. It's going to be hard and you're going to have to have complete commitment, but we can do it. And it was this moment of like, really? We can? Okay, then. <laughs> All right, like let's, let's go. And so for me, that was the beginning of things. That's when I dived in. And one of the other things she said in that session, which really resonated with me, was you don't have an eating disorder. And at first I sort of looked at my mom and thought, God, this woman is a lunatic. <laughs> and, and she said, you don't have an eating disorder. An eating disorder is something that you do. It's a behavior that's become a habit. And habits can be changed if you really want to. And I think that is a really, really powerful thing to remember because it is a habit and it is something that I could change. So cue the most excruciating six months of my life where I threw tantrums, wanted to rip my skin off and run away. But I did it. I came back again and again and again and again. And, you know, I remember walking out of the first session and saying to mum, oh, well, that was a waste of money. And she said, why? And I said, well, the only thing I thought about that whole session was the fact that I should be out doing some exercise and how big my thighs were. And I went back the next session and told Silky that. And I said, it's not you, it's me. I'm beyond help. And and I was telling her about what I'd been thinking in the session and the fact that I'd taken nothing in. She said, that's fine. I'm working on your unconscious. We've just got to let your <laughs> conscious mind run because I can't go head to head with your eating disorder because I'll never get anywhere. And I just thought, wow, this is such a unique way of, of approaching this. Like I am, I'm in. And the whole process, I think, for me was com- about coming home to myself, but also about becoming softer. So not only softer in the way that I viewed the world, in the way that things weren't so hard and fast they weren't so black and white but obviously softer in my body as well and less angular and softer with my my dear self and I weight restored and started rediscovering myself and life and it was a wild ride but incredible and we went back to Auckland at the end of the six months and I quickly realized that being back in Auckland wasn't the right place for me. It didn't fit with my the, my new sense of self and my recovered, the recovered me. And so I went to LA, which is another very, very special place for me. A lot of pivotal moments in my journey happened in California and I have a lot of dear friends over there. So I spent a couple of months in California really living and reveling in the fact that I could be independent and do whatever I want and I can go to Jones on 3rd and have the cupcake that I had looked at for the last five years and looked at it and then walked back out of Jones on 3rd. Walked into Jones on 3rd and I got that cupcake. I sat there and I ate that cupcake. (laughs) And so little things like that and just really just reveled in this freedom that I had. Mm. And then I had this pivotal moment. I was in a park 
and I heard a woman pushing a girl on a swing uh, who was about five or six years old and she said to the girl I won't be able to swing you anymore you're getting soon you're getting too fat and I have this visceral reaction in the pit of my stomach to that statement and what that could trigger off the course of events that that could trigger off in that young girl's life and that night I went home and I wrote since 2000 16 and when we still would write massive essays on our Facebook walls and I wrote on my Facebook wall a very raw honest account of what it was like to live in the depths of an eating disorder and I went to bed and then I woke up and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people had liked and shared it and resonated with it and then Huffington Post published it and that sort of started a bit of a media storm around it and and got published in, in a number of different different platforms and that's when I realized this is it. Mm. This is my purpose. This is the reason. This is why I struggled so long and so hard. This is why I was told I was going to die because I can now be living proof that full recovery is possible no matter what. And that's when I realized, okay, this is this is the deal. This is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. So I decided to move to the Sunshine Coast, my happy place, because life's too short not to be living somewhere where you are happiest and decided I wanted to start an eating disorders charity. Within two weeks of moving here, I met the incredible Mark and Gay Forbes who had established Ended here on the Sunshine Coast Mm -hmm. as a parent support group. And I came along and said that I'd like to help people who are suffering. And so I did. We started that and we had a joint dream of establishing Australia's first residential eating disorders facility. So unlike in the USA, we didn't have any residential facilities here. Mm. So I went back to went back to California and looked at many, many residential facilities over there and decided, looked at at, at everything from ceiling heights to staffing structures to how they ran their groups. And we came back and sat with architects and designed the beautiful property that is now Wandi Nirida, which sits out in Malula Valley in the Sunshine Coast hinterland. And we're very, very proud of, of bringing that to the Sunshine Coast community. And, and fingers crossed it's going to be replicated around Australia, which will be so wonderful. And so working with Ended has been incredible. I'm an eating disorder recovery coach trained under Carolyn, and I'm also a neurolinguistic program practitioner and so within dead I do one-on-one recovery coaching I also run zoom groups I also run our social media we have the end eating disorders podcast as well and involved on lots of different projects and in terms of advocacy at both a federal and local level which is really really exciting to be able to use my lived experience to create systemic change Um, because ultimately that's what I want to do is to know that when I'm no longer on this earth, that I've done everything I possibly can to use my lived experience to bring eating disorders out of the shadows and into the light and and for there to have been a real shift in the way that people speak about eating disorders and in stripping away that 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 guilt, that shame, that stigma around them, I'd really like for that to, to not exist. And then I also have my private practice healed, which I launched last year, and I'm really proud proud of that. That's it was big a big career goal of mine, and I really enjoy working with my my clients all around the world. And actually consulting on a few projects in New Zealand at the moment, which are really really exciting. So that's me. 
at the moment, living here, doing, feeling very lucky to have been able to turn what's, what was such a painful experience into my purpose and to be able to use those torturous experiences to help light the way for mm-hmm. others to find their freedom. Mm-hmm. Wow, Millie, your story is just so riveting and inspiring. And honestly, I, hear, I, I think of the words riveting and gripping. Like I am just always unmesmerized by <laughs> your story because it's so beautiful how your vulnerability went viral by mistake. Like you yeah, have no that. clue. Huffington yeah. Post, a huge publication picks it up. You're launched into this beautiful career almost immediately after recovering it was like you just stepped into this new role in life and now to hear that you had so much involvement with the first residential treatment center in Australia is amazing like it's such a huge accomplishment to be able to do so much in such a short amount of time so I just wanted to commend you for all of that Oh, thank you so much. I think yes, I am I am a bit go, go, go. And so I don't I I don't take probably as many moments as I should uh reflecting back on what I have achieved in such a short space of time. I think I do have this sense of making up for lost time. Mm-hmm. And so I do really seize every day and just want to maximize. And my goal is to always try and have the biggest impact I possibly can as many people as I can with with that message of of hope and and the importance of of lived experience and creating that hope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's so clear too, because you were basically stripped down from your hope. Like people took your hope away from you. And so the fact that now your mission is to just give people their hope back and help them reconnect to that, is just amazing to to see and to hear. One question I had for you about your story before we get into more about linguistic programming and changing your brain was at what point did you start to get your hope back? I know when you first started working with Suki, it was like miserable at first. Did you ever have a pivotal moment or a um, aha moment where you're like, you know, I'm going to survive this thing? It really was that first session with Silky when she told me, you can change your brain. Mm -hmm. If you really want to, you can do this. Mm -hmm. And that for me was a game changer. And then this idea that I didn't have an eating disorder, this was something that I did. Yes. Yes. And I think this is this reframing of what this actually is. Super powerful. No one has ever said that Mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. And that really shifted something inside of me. Mm-hmm. And it just goes to show the power of language too, which is what neurolinguistic programming is all about, which I love. And so I was wondering if you could explain to those listening, what exactly is neurolinguistic programming? Sure. I always find it so hard to <laughs> articulate because it is, I felt the process was this weird sort of these things would happen and I'm like how am I not thinking like that anymore but I mean in essence 
NLP or neurolinguistic programming is it's what we call this connection between our neurological processes. So that's the neuro part, obviously, the language, the linguistic, and the behavioral patterns that we've learned through experience, which is the programming. Mm-hmm. And it's the concept that these can be changed to achieve whatever goals in life that you have. So NLP is used so broadly in so many different aspects, whether it be business, whether it be sports. Silky had never dealt with anybody who had an eating disorder before. She dealt with CEOs and, and say sports people. And so I think it's such a, a versatile concept. And for me, what was fantastic was that Silky worked on my unconscious and let my conscious mind run. So that was really good because as we know, our eating disorders are really, really strong. And so they try and prevent anything from getting through. So a lot of the stuff that was happening was on that subconscious level mm. and was enab- was enabling me to really open my mind to different ideas and different ways of thinking. In our head, we have all these neural pathways. So if you imagine our brain is just filled with all of these neural pathways, okay? And the way that I like to think about it is that if you imagine um, a bird's eye view of, say, a freeway in LA where there's all these fast-flowing roads, generally they're not fast-flowing actually, (laughs) or is that a standstill in LA traffic? But say at night when no one's on the road, like how do you know it's on the road and there's just all these flashing lights, these cars, there's lots of swirly, curly roads and they're all just, you know, but they all somehow work. And off to the side of the road, there is a grassy sort of hill that someone, and there's a little path that someone has once tried to sort of bushwhack out, right? Mm-hmm. And that is, that's your healthy self pathway right there. And every single time that you choose to go with your healthy self rather than your eating disorder self, you start to carve that pathway out more and then eventually tar seal it. And then eventually it becomes a road. Eventually it becomes this freedom superhighway and your eating disorder superhighway is redundant uh, because you realize this one's just as easy, just as fast flowing. And my goodness, you feel a heck of a lot better when you take this highway. Mm. And so Really, it's about, you think about every single time that you have a thought, the more that you have that thought and the more that you make that connection in your brain, the deeper that furrow in your brain goes, right? That groove for that Mm -hmm. thought. And so then the harder it is to get get rid of that groove. But the way that you do it is going, okay, right here I've got, we have all these choice points throughout the day with our eating disorder, whether we're going to say, for example, have morning snack or not have morning snack. Now, not having morning snack is clearly going with your eating disorder self. It's getting you further away from freedom and it's going to make those eating disorder superhighway furrows even deeper. Going with your healthy self is not only making the furrows and the eating disorder superhighway shallower, it is also increasing the construction, so to speak, of the the freedom, the freedom highway up there on that grassy hill. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I always say to people, don't think that any moment in time or any choice point that you have is, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's just one little thing. It does matter. 
every single day you've got to consciously consistently commit that's my my three c's is conscious consistent commitment because that's what i found when i was recovering you think about it your eating disorder is this all-consuming thing that takes up so much of your life and it's intense and it's strong you have got to be all-consuming in your commitment to recovery And you have got to be super strong. And the way that you do that is showing that there is no backing down. You are consciously, consistently committing all the time to to doing that, to making change. You have got to be absolutely relentless in your pursuit of of that life of freedom that you deserve. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, it's going to be all these times your eating disorder is going to try to make you turn back and try and convince you that you don't need to do this and you can still do life with me. It's all okay. (laughs) Come on. But you can't listen to that. You've got to remember your eating disorder is a narcissistic, manipulative liar. It always has been and always will be. That's that's not going to change. So every moment of every day, conscious, consistent commitment, I cannot stress that strongly enough because that will help change your brain. Mm. And I love that you bring up that the battle really needs to happen every single day. You can't some days have off days. That's not how recovery works. And unfortunately, I wish you could have a day off here or there, but in reality, you always have to keep going. And when you were talking, it reminded me of something I've heard you say before as well, which is the importance of taking ownership of your recovery. And I hear, I would love for you to share more about your thoughts on that too. Absolutely. So it is one of the most important things is you recognizing that this is your journey. There's actually no one else's journey and it is no one else's responsibility. I think all too often, and and don't get me wrong, I did this myself for like over a decade, Mm -hmm. thinking, well, if I only had a better therapist, if I only had this support, if only this was the case, then I'll definitely be better. It's got nothing to do with the fact that I might be just quietly not addressing some of the core issues that I need to be addressing. This is your responsibility and no one else's. And you have got to take the reins and you have got to really do that. You can have the best treatment team in the world, but if you don't commit 200% to recovery, then you are going to remain stuck. And, you know, I have clients say to me, oh, but that scares me. I don't have what it takes. I don't have, don't let it scare you. Let it empower you. That means your recovery isn't reliant on anyone else. You're not waiting for anyone else. You're not Mm. having to wait to see whether you can afford to see that top, top therapist that everyone's talking about or that top coach, whatever. At the end of the day, it's actually not about that. It's about you committing to recovery. It's about you taking that leap of faith. And it's also about you recognizing that you have the power within you to do this, Mm. but you've got to choose to do it. And getting an eating disorder, it's not a choice, but my goodness, recovery is a choice. Mm. And it's a choice that you have to make every single day. And like my dear colleague Mia says, recovery always has to be the top priority. I completely agree with that. It is so imperative that people make it their top priority and that you jump all in. And I don't know when you're working with new clients, but it's very clear to me when people come to me and they're not completely fully in it yet. Oh, and yeah. and then their progress isn't as 
they're not making the progress they could be because there's a part of them that's still being very protective of the disorder or I don't know, just, I can, I can feel the difference between someone who's fully in someone who's kind of playing around with their toes and toes, dipping their toes in the water kind of a thing. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm exactly the same. Can, can spot it a mile away. <laughs> yeah. So I was wondering if you could share a bit about how someone might be able to learn to practice cognitive flexibility and switching things up in their eating disorder. Cause I know this is really important when it comes to changing your brain. It is super important. So cognitive flexibility is what is going to help you to really make those new neural connections. So what we know is that eating disorders very often thrive on the rigidity and the routine. And so basically you have to kind of throw that out and create new new patterns and new ways of living. So I'm talking about everything from where you sit at the dining table to, to what plates and bowls you sit to when you exercise to how your bedroom is arranged. These things really, really impact how our brains, you know, fall back into old patterns Mm. or are triggered off into, into old thoughts. So it's really, really, really important that we, we, we shift things up. So the more that you can think, think to yourself, okay, where am I being rigid? Where do I do the same things repeatedly all the time? Where can I change in that respect? So I know for me, it was where I sat at the table, it was changing the cutlery, like as in not using small spoons, using normal cutlery, um, not having to use the same bowl for the same meal. You know, an example that Silky gave me around this was she was working with a truck driver who was trying to stop smoking. Now he was, it was a very small space that he, he worked in, which was obviously the cab of the truck. And so it was about what can we do? How can we shift that around and your routine, his routine around so that there wasn't that immediate need. He didn't feel like he needed to go and, and get a cigarette. And so it can be, you mean, you can do it in, in a number of different ways. And I guess it all depends on what your environment's like and, and how rigid you are with things. But it's super, super, super important to have that as something that you practice as much as you possibly can because it's in mm-hmm. practicing it that, that you will really, really get, get those results. Mm. So what I'm hearing is that a person's environment has a huge impact on their ability to make change. Like if, so if someone with an eating disorder wanted to make change, would you suggest potentially rearranging their room or moving or like, what do you, like, how far can a person take this? Well, you can take it as far as you can take it. Everybody's so different. Everybody is so, so different in terms of what will work. But I know for me, having a 
doing recovery somewhere else is really helpful. Um, However, it's really important to remember that at the end of the day, you do have to go back to that same environment. And so sometimes it can be easier to actually recover in that environment because you're dealing with all the triggers as they come up rather than recovering somewhere else and then coming back and having to kind of do almost like a second recovery as you start to deal with all the triggers. So as I say, everybody's so, so different in terms of what would work for, for them. But I think following your instinct in terms of what feels right for you. Like if you really feel like I want to go and I want to recover over here, I feel like that's going to really help me. Do it. Go. Take that leap of faith. But also don't be disheartened if it suddenly it doesn't work. I think that's the important thing is, is like what we know is that some things work, some things don't work. And it's important about to keep an open mind. Mm. Yes. It's so important, especially since we're practicing cognitive flexibility, right? like you have to be open-minded some things are going to work some things aren't and that's just life absolutely yeah I I also was curious while you were talking we're talking a lot about flexibility and building that in your environment what about practicing new ways of thinking I know sometimes with the dialoguing between the healthy self and the eating disorder self I see this all the time My clients know exactly what to say from the healthy self. You can tell they know the right thing to say. They know this is the most logical, practical, science-based way or whatever it may be, but they don't buy into that thought. They're not really connecting with it. Do you have any suggestions? And this is a question that I did not send you in advance, so I'm sorry I'm putting you on the spot, but... How might you suggest someone to start really believing the thoughts of their healthy self? Because it's one thing to think of those thoughts, but it's another thing to really start to live them and believe them. You know what I mean by that? Absolutely. I mean, I think for me, it would be around connecting with your values, connecting with What do you care about? What, you know, I do this activity with clients where they create a what am I fighting for list. Okay, what are you fighting for in life? What do you want out of life? And so getting really, really clear on that, looking at, okay, these thoughts and and this stuff, is this aligning with that or not? Yes. And that constant reminder that your eating disorder is lying. Like Mm -hmm. if you can try to write that on an affirmation card. I mean, I had affirmations everywhere. That was key. Write down the facts. When your eating disorders make you feel a certain way, it's a feeling, not a fact. And I think the other thing too is to remember that you have control over whether you engage in these thoughts or not. I think for me, I always visualized an orb of light around my head, which refracted off the thoughts that were trying to plague me. And that was really, really, really helpful. Because it meant that I could see the thoughts, I could uh, acknowledge that they were that they were coming, and then I could just watch them like bing, 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 back off again, <laughs> and not go down that rabbit hole with them. Because I think that this is the thing: we go down this rabbit hole with our thoughts, with the eating disorder, and it's a never-ending saga because the eating disorder always wants to win. Mm. That is actually so helpful. Just knowing that you don't have to engage in the thoughts. And I think so often yeah. we don't, when you're in it, you don't really 
think about that. You don't think, well, I actually don't have to engage in this right now. It's don't have to. And yes, your eating disorder gets angrier and angrier as you don't engage. But Frank, well, no, this is a choice that I've made. It's aligning with the life that I want to live. Yes, yes. I think not engaging in it is also kind of helpful in solidifying the concept that I don't need to give so much value or attribute so much weight to these thoughts after all. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. No, beautiful. You don't. You absolutely <laughs> don't. It's so important, as I say, to remember that right on affirmation cards, write it on your mirror, like wherever you need to write it mm. to remind yourself because often they might be listening to this podcast right now and be like, oh, yes, and having like a total aha moment. Well, I can guarantee you in 20 minutes time when it's morning tea and you're faced with whatever that your eating disorder will have conveniently made you forget about what you've just listened to on mm-hmm. this podcast. So take <laughs> notes, make affirmation cards, and yeah, and, and really, really do it. Yes. Yes. I am a huge affirmations fan, by the way. I have all these affirmations recordings that I provide to my clients and on my website. And I really do believe that the cool thing about affirmations is that they offer you that new way of thinking, like they're that disruptor. And if you choose to take on that affirmation, it disrupts maybe that eating disorder highway, the way your eating disorder wants to think. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and NLP, they actually call that like a pattern interrupt. And yes, it's yes. really, really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. So, so powerful. Mm-hmm. So what are some of your favorite mantras for recovery? Well, you know what? Actually, something that's, I'll go to some mantras in a second, but something that I want to share too is just following on from my three C's, I forget, my three P's of recovery, okay? So <laughs> purpose persistence and patience so mm. what i mean by that is this goes in line with changing your brain and your thoughts as you need to be really really clear on why you're recovering like i said what are you fighting for because if you can be really really clear on that then it's going to be easier to commit to that changing your brain because you're going to be like i'm doing this for a reason because i want xyz and you've got to be persistent in your pursuit of that because if you're not, then your eating disorder is just going to drown you out. So you've got to fight for that freedom, even when your eating disorder is screaming at you. And remember, when your eating disorder is screaming at you, you're doing the right thing because you're challenging it. If it's not screaming, then I would hazard a guess that you're not challenging hard enough. And then patience, because you've got to remember that recovery is a journey. Mm-hmm. It takes time to strengthen your healthy self. So be gentle with yourself and give yourself time to grow and to flourish. But in terms of mantras, I think a couple that really stuck with me was nothing changes if nothing changes. You're so much more than your body. Your weight is not your worth. Another one that I used to use a lot was you only get one wild and precious life. Is this how you want to be spending it? (laughs) And, I mean, gosh, there were so, so many more, but I think those those were the things that really hit home for me the most and I you know, would often gravitate back to. And I think the other things were very much around bringing me back to the moment and like, I'll never have this moment back. I'll never get this time back. So is this how I want to be spending this time, this moment in time? And so I think that can be incredibly, incredibly powerful to just be like, okay, step back for a second. I'll never get this time back. Is this what I want to be doing with it? Such a powerful question 
that gives us all a chance to reflect. And I think that's a beautiful phrase to end our interview with today. So Millie, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. And before I let you go, I was wondering if you have one last piece of advice that you'd like to share with those listening today. Absolutely. So my one last piece of advice would be that if you're out there in the trenches still battling away, I want you to know that full recovery is absolutely possible. No matter how long or how hard you've been struggling with your eating disorder for, you can fully recover. Don't let anyone or anything tell you otherwise. You can recover. Yes, it takes commitment and it will likely be the hardest thing that you've ever done in your life. But I can promise you that it will also likely be the best thing that you've ever done in your life. And please don't wait to be ready to recover because you're not going to suddenly wake up one day and feel ready. You need to take that leap of faith. You need to jump off that cliff. And even though it's absolutely petrifying, nothing is scarier than staying stuck where you are right now. Love it. Thank you so much, Millie. That was great. I'm sure everyone's scribbling away notes listening to this episode today. So thank you so much. And it was a pleasure to have you today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Anytime. You're welcome back here. Anytime. All right. Have a great day, Millie. Thank you.